my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Studio 22. Welcome to Studio 22. I'm Brock O'Hearn. I'm here with my co-host, Will Meldman, and we are with Ben Silverman, Propagate chairman, co-CEO, and former chairman of NBC Universal, New York Times bestseller, and Ben is a multi-Emmy and Golden Globe award-winning media mogul. And Ben, we are grateful to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thank you for including me, boys. Yeah, man. Thanks for your time. To dive in, kind of what I was thinking we could do is just start at the beginning, you know. Uh, What was your first interest in the entertainment industry? Well, I grew up in showbiz. My uh, dad is an avant-garde chamber music composer and loved movies growing up amazing man stanley silverman and my mom was an opera singer turned theater producer and eventually a television executive in kind of the birth of cable tv uh, mainly driven by the fact that my dad's avant-garde composing couldn't pay for dinner let alone college (laughs) and so she had to kind of sell out to television but they were both kind of darlings of the intellectual set of late 60s early 70s um new york city and um both loved movies musicals ballet opera and i just grew up in the arts my stepmom who my father married after um my mom and he got divorced is a brilliant violinist my little sister wrote for the new york times and can play the lute my older sister is a painter you know so it just was surrounded by creativity but also i really had an ambition to figure out a way to do it on a high commercial level that could reach as wide an audience as possible and then maybe become uh, more lucrative. And I also grew up, um, my parents got divorced when I was four as a latchkey kid in New York City. And I literally was raised by television. I mean, that every, every, watched every single show, every morality test, every (laughs) part of my upbringing was informed by MASH and I Love Lucy and uh, a multitude of TV hits. 
I, I mean, I totally get that. I grew up in a big family, family of five, and uh, the TV was our parents, you know? So it's, it's a great, oh. great thing to have. Yeah, that's awesome. More specifically to that point, um, a little bit more down the road, what were your first uh, jobs in entertainment? During college, I did a number of interns that my mom helped me get when she was uh, working in cable TV. She introduced me to a number of people, including Eric Frankel, who was at Warner Brothers. And I worked in a series of Warner Brothers internships across different divisions, from the sales division to the animation division. And eventually... When I went to Paris to study abroad, even worked in the Paris office of Warner Brothers to try and learn kind of international, uh, you know, production. And then from there, graduated and became an assistant at CBS and then got hired by a woman named Barbara Corday, who was a brilliant visionary co-creator of Cagney and Lacey. And within one day, she had promoted me three different times and told me it would be in variety the next day. We were an office of three people, so it was easy to promote me. But she opened, you know, with, you know, I really think we should say that you've joined the company when I came in the morning and we'll call you the development coordinator. And then by lunchtime, she came back from lunch and said, you know what? I was really thinking about it. And you should be the manager of development. And then before we left the office, she goes, the press will be out tomorrow, buddy. You're the director of development. And I was like, this, (laughs) and I was like, this is a good start. Oh man! Best day um, ever. And and that sequences of hard hard work and good luck and you know being in the lucky moment or right dynamic in the right moment um, really helped accelerate my career early. Oh, that's awesome! I'm sure you left uh, work smiling that day. That's, yeah, totally. That's awesome. It, it's awesome. Every day for Barbara was awesome. Well, I mean, that sounds like a super fast, really awesome way to get in. Uh, were there any things you'd say, uh, any obstacles you faced early on, or was it just like, hey, I went from this to three? You know, to- totally, you know, seesawed my way across, you know, <laughs> many, many challenges in many moments as a um, aspiring, you know, creative person and producer and executive. And, you know, living in the studio apartment, uh, typing on a typewriter outside of an office in a line of kind of cubicles at CBS where I was the secretary to start and having an actual roach infested studio apartment on Sierra Bonita where like I had a system of walking across the floor to the bathroom so I never touched the floor, you know, on books and and other uh, things that were raised up to avoid the roaches. So, you know, had all of that and then throughout my career have either found a chip challenges or been you know annoyed or you know beaten to the punch in something i wanted to do or you know you know mischaracterized by by you know kind of the name digital press or whatever it is i found sequences of challenge and hurdle all along the way and then it's just a highly competitive business you know it, it just happens to be intrinsically competitive and one in which so many of the players believe in a zero-sum game. Like they can't revel in their own success; they have to uh, find someone's downfall to feel their success. There's so many great lines about it, but like no one catches a falling knife in Hollywood. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that you know, me and Will have had conversations and about that. Should catch a falling knife in general for all the children listening. Not it, a good idea. Let the knife fall. Yeah, no, absolutely. Move yeah. your feet. You sound like a parent. It's uh, what. <laughs> Total. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. No, yeah, definitely. I think. Uh, I mean, we'll have those conversations every now and again about. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that come and they want to 
like you said, make you go down and step on top of you to get to where you want, where they want to go versus like the, the crabs in a bucket where if we all just help each other, we can all get there. There's plenty for everyone, right? Everyone to eat. So I love the crabs in the bucket. Yeah. 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 yeah I say that all the time. I love it. So how did those early experiences eventually lead you into producing? Well, I always wanted to be a producer, whatever that meant. And I had a pretty good idea of it because I lived through it with my family's um, relationship to many great theater producers from Joe Papp, who's like one of the great icons and started the New York Public Theater, to um, Lynn Austin, who was a collaborator of my mother's, who was this amazing woman who drove a mercedes and i was just blown away that someone could drive a mercedes um in the world of the artist that was not the car you drove we had a you know 12 year old vw that <laughs> i slept in the back of on long trips and i think that um you know that that was kind of clear to me even as a kid that's where i wanted to be in the world of samuel goldwyn and like the kind of famous the warner brothers like the kind of icons of the birth of of cinema were all in the studios were all people that i kind of fantasized you know about becoming one day and watching the um musicals that i used to watch the kind of behind the scenes musicals the fred astaire musicals the gene kelly musicals where they were always kind of a show within a show that was how they got to be the musical and that also made me really um aspire to the kind of glamour and positivity and kind of fantasy of uh great movie making and television yeah i love those like i like to call them defining moments in your life you know where you kind of attach yourself to a memory or a moment or whatever it is and it kind of like like something like that you know the show within the show and you being able to see that and enjoy that uh and then take it on so it's, i totally get that man i love it yeah for me it's been kind of like the escape the escapism part of it where like if you're watching a film for two hours you are just in that world. And I, like you said too, like the fantasy element. I love that. Yeah. Speaking uh, early on too, um, you know, me and Will are big fans of Nirvana and uh, knowing you produce, produced uh, in 1998 with Kurt and Courtney, with Kurt Cobain, obviously, and uh, Courtney Love. Uh, what was it that drew you to that? Well, you know, I, that story is incredible. And I met Courtney and I spent time with Courtney and she's a amazingly intelligent um, articulate, you know, fireball of energy and disparate thoughts that kind of coalesce in, in brilliance and just thought that, you know, that, that story should and needs to be told and it will be told again. You know, I think it's perpetually told because that birth of grunge and that, you know, representation Kurt had on behalf of so many disenfranchised people and lived through music and art and not not violence except to himself was really uh you know a seminal seminal moment you know and i think uh there's uh, so many stories based on him his music his his art that uh have yet to be told yeah what a what an impact right yeah i never got to spend time with him but spent a ton of time with her yeah, that's awesome. It's the, definitely those ones that can transition time, uh, you know, or, or be timeless. You know, the Bob Marleys, the Kurt Cobains, you know, it's like those are the yeah. ones where you're like, you you did something, you know, you moved a generation, really. It's incredible. Permanence. Yeah. And we're seeing with McCartney right now. I'm loving McCartney's yeah. Rubin interviews and uh, the Disney Peter Jackson Beatles doc. Yeah. Um, we're both just awesome. I love that he's finally telling the story. 
And I love how, too, like film gives us that opportunity to go back and relive some of that and, and highlight specific moments. And yeah, that Beatles thing was pretty impressive. He's always young in that. Yeah. Um, I think you said it before we started recording, but, uh, you know, you've worked on, let's just say, Will's favorite all-time uh, show. You executive produced a show called The Office that aired first in 2005. What led you to start that journey? And did you have any idea how big of a cultural impact it would have when you first started? My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I don't know if I thought it would be this successful today. But at the time, I thought it should be as successful as it is today. And I really believed in it um, uniquely. I thought it was funnier in the underlying material, which I found in the UK and which Richard Gervais and Stephen Shedd created. It was more poignant than the shows of that moment, which were a really canned laughter, kind of puerile chuck Lorre sexuality and and like you know just mediocre to me they weren't making me laugh and then boom this show comes on tv on bbc2 and i'm watching them and i'm confused by it and then i'm 
leaning into it and then I'm uncovering things and then I'm really, really laughing. And when we, um, but you know, I found it and then brought it to Greg Daniels to collaborate on with it and adapt it and create his own version. And then, you know, coming up with the idea of Scranton, the way that Slough and the UK version Scranton kind of looks on, you know, it's not really near any city, but it's close to all cities and it's not quite a city, but it is a city. You know, one of these kind of places like Slough, which I'd been to in London, having lived in London. So I really understood a lot of the cultural specificity and translation around it. And then to kind of amass that murderer's row of talent from, you know, Corel to Krasinski to Ro- Craig Robinson to, to you know, every single player um, from deep on the bench to all the way in the front row. Like, it, it's an amazing ensemble. And I really feel lucky that it got rediscovered in the kind of post-syndication age because it didn't do that well in syndication. Um, it almost required this new genre you know of comedy that netflix kind of pushed which was more informed by the office than the comedies that had predated it and i also think that um the kind of old hair set of independent um you know kind of affiliates and 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 broadcast affiliates were just like confused about the show like it just didn't kind of connect to them as much so they didn't they didn't really invest in it it really took cable and streaming to have it hit this younger demo and become so permanently famous you can get it all in our book brian baumgartner and i wrote a book which is a fantastic book it was a new york times bestseller for four weeks and harper collins like everybody involved in the office no one fully believes ordered eighty thousand books which they thought was a huge printing all eighty thousand books sold out and so they had no more books so we could you can't stay on the on the bestseller list when you have no books to sell but the books wow. will be back at now they're totally available and you can order anywhere from amazon and it's the oral history of the office brian baumgartner who played kevin you know a a, a fan favorite from both his chili and the scrantonicity <laughs> great great drummer great golfer yeah. brian baumgartner great talent great podcaster we got to connect this podcast to your podcast and uh and we did we did the book and the book really gives you so much detail and insight into the alchemy and luck that made that show. And I can support that statement. I, I have the book and then I also have Somehow I Manage that Brock got me, the Michael Scott one. Yeah, it's a, a hilarious little, little gag gift kind of, but it was a yeah. you know, Scranton bestseller. So, you know, you got to get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I recently just worked on the show called Righteous Gemstones on HBO, Danny McBride, oh, John Goodman. I, I know, yeah, I know. They're so freaking good, brother. Oh, it's man. so good. He makes me laugh. Like that, you yeah. guys, like that's one other group of people that actually genuinely are funny. Oh, it's, it's, he, they are hilarious. And it's, that's what it is on set too. And it's even cool. The crew he built too over the past 20 years is all friends and, and people he's worked with. And, and so there's a real good community. Yeah. There. So it's just jokes all day. And I don't think anyone laughs more than Danny. Um, but, <laughs> but to that point too, is uh, there's so much improv going on all the time. How much was there uh, or even what percentage would you say was going on in the office, you know, and did that change the way that well, you produce? We, 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 we wrote it all, but then we would give them multiple takes and mm-hmm. you know like we, we would be like okay talk to the camera and say jan stole my sandwich and then they do it once 
twice, three times that way. And then they do four or five or six their own way, you know? And so it was really, you know, grounded in them knowing and nailing the line and then doing their version. Cause you never knew, as you know, Brock, like what you need to pick up for story yeah. like, later on that yeah. maybe an improv would have thrown off versus doing it in a funnier way or a more complete yeah. way or a better way. Ian, so many of our team were writers. So they kind of lived it. BJ Novak, who played yeah. Ryan, Mindy Kaling, you know, they, they were writers. Toby, you know, um, Paul Lieberstein. Like, so there was so much back and forth also that they were able to kind of bring a little extra around that. That's great. Yeah. I think some of those best moments are improv. And, and my first introduction into the film industry, uh, being in front of the camera, was Boo Amadea Halloween with Tyler oh, Perry. Really? And that was the nice thing about working with him, though, is my first time doing it. Yeah, it was awesome. Was, um, he said, and I asked him too, you know, and then a lot, and it was nice to know was that he's just writing the intention on the paper. And as long as you can get the intention across, you can say whatever the heck you want, you know, and it makes it so fun. Cause if you're, when you're around a bunch of comedians and people that are just having fun, it's, it's the whole product is, yeah, you is better. Feel it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I love that. And you can tell on, on the office, it's like, it's never not good, man. It's never not good. It's so fun. Yeah. I've never seen like so many people having so much fun in one place. It, it really looks like everyone is just having a blast on that set and just like really enjoying being at work. Yeah. Chemistry is great. People and you're, great you're in character the whole time, right? Like yeah. you're in the back of that office. It, you've got to be doing stuff. <laughs> you know, you're in uh, like we, we have a lot of big shots with a lot of the talent uh, performing it almost like an orchestra, right? You know, like, you know, Leslie who plays Stanley's doing something on the computer, you know, Paul Lieberstein's Toby's like looking at a piece of paper, you know, kind of cockeyed and Pam's drawing a picture, you know, it's all, it's got so much layering, like a, a great painting. That's interesting too. Just like a brief side note comment on what you said about like Scranton, like not being a big city, but being near several. And like, I feel like that's can sometimes be the feeling of what it's like to work in an office, right? Like I've never thought about Total. this until you said it, but it's like, you're at a big company, but do you, you know, you, do you matter as much? Like there's no, a bunch it's like of you dead and end, like, dead end, dead end, right? Like we're in a business that's dying. We're in a town that's dead. We're in a, I mean, Scranton's all alive, but you know, like relative in the consciousness we're in a, you know, mind killing, uh, workplace <laughs> and we and and how do we feel what's our like and then within it you realize oh we're a family and we're we're together and that's all we need you know is is finding that and then you right. have so much pathos and you know it's about it's about love in the every in the simple things and love in the smallest things along the lines of the office again mindy kaling has become so successful since that show as well I mean, what signs did she show that, you know, she would bloom into this incredible career also? I mean, it's pretty impressive what she's done. Well, I mean, I think about all of them, right? You know, I think I think of Krasinski's fucking Jack Ryan. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, awesome. I did not, you know, you. I don't think you would have taken him into, you know, that kind of, and let alone the um, movies he's making with his wife, Emily Blunt which are just like Matt and he's directing them, you know, and Mindy's creating sitcoms and BJ Novak's writing children's books and, 
you know, you just see so much and Craig Robinson's everywhere, you know, yeah. and you just see, let alone Carell, who, you know, has been nominated and won and at Oscars and just makes some of the finest movies around and clearly has such great taste. You know, so I think it, as I said earlier, it's like it's a murderer's row of talent, both in front of and behind the camera. Our line producer, Kenza Bornick, was brilliant. Like every part of that show from editor to director to writer to actor to producer was was, you know, really built for each other. Yeah, no, I mean, it's you're exactly right. And I, I actually love watching the um, uh, audition process of all the different people that auditioned for that those roles. And then you see who it got and just the chemistry of, you know, you speak of taste, obviously you and, and everyone involved has such great taste. Uh, because look at what you guys were able to do and, and it works so seamlessly and it's so fun, uh, to even be a viewer of. And so, yeah, I guess segueing now, um, and we can talk about the office all day, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, with, uh, Oscars around the corner, um, I was looking, we were looking into the stats, you know, and looking at from, uh, 2020 to 2021, the Oscars went from nearly 24 million down to 10.4 million was a 56% decrease in the ratings. And, the Oscars are something that you've referred to as the Super Bowl of film. Uh, do you think last year's drop-off is going to have lasting effects? And and what do you maybe predict or foresee for uh, Oscars to come, you know? Well, I love the idea of Amy Schumer hosting it. You know, she's dangerous. She's fun. You know, she she's what live television should be. I, I found the Oscars last year to be so offensive in how much disregard they had for the audience um that it it really was hurtful and as a fan of cinema there was no question that that was a turkey of turkeys on every turkey level but i give it an asterisk it was a covid year you know it's like a ball player on steroids you gotta just put the asterisk next to it (laughs) and i think they didn't know how to handle it and they weren't equipped for it and they felt kind of under attack as an institution in so many places they just caved to everybody and did nothing nothing for anybody and now I think they recognize that and they're pulling up their bootstraps. They need to celebrate their art and treat the audience who is the one that drives the entire business and is what the business is built for um, to, to be able to enjoy it and celebrate it and feel like they're part of it, not being kind of talked at, but partnered with. Yeah, it makes all the difference. And that's how we keep making great content that also serves the generations now and then to come. And I feel like television, separate from its award shows, has always been so intimate and so connected to its viewer because it's been in the living room and it's been in the bedroom and it's been in these places where you're kind of walking barefoot. And the movies had always been in these big auditoriums where you were sometimes dressed up, sometimes on a date with your family, but around others and in this kind of communal kind of spectacle. And the Oscars had to remember that and celebrate that and connect to it to remain um, theatrical and how they're distributed. But also, even within the streaming universe, there's something special and digestible about a great big movie that that excites you. And they just need to kind of help support their industry through the Oscars more so than some others, because it, it really has been such a big tentpole television experience. And along those lines, um, I mean, your business partner on The Office, Ricky Gervais, I mean, he has kind of definitely publicly kind of come out and ahead of this with some of his speeches at award ceremonies. I mean, do you think he was just 
having fun or do you think you actually had some like foresight into what was going to kind of happen? No, I didn't see it, but I didn't have to read it. Oh, okay. but I have no doubt he was doing it to be funny. Right. No, I'm sure He's- he did not like try and expose or read somebody's speech. I'm I'm a hundred percent positive. He would be trying to be amusing and just knows how self-indulgent the, the community will be and is, um, with their platform, obviously movies and television are a platform, right? Like, and there's a responsibility to tell the truth and assume every latchkey kid is watching and looking for the morality that came through mash and came comes to the office and comes to great poignant TV and movies, but you don't need to like talk down to the people watching it. You, you need mm. to like allow it to be digested. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, on the surface, it just seems like he was being funny and, you know, making jokes cause that's what he was supposed to do. But the comedic, genius. I got to read it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Did it make you laugh? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, then I'll yeah. read it. When, when does he not? That's the yeah, <laughs> more line. It is great. Yeah, it's awesome. Even the stuff with him and Steve Carell, uh, they're back and forth. It's battle, great, yeah. dude. I love it. Uh, so you also produced The Biggest Loser, which actually ran longer than The Office. Uh, do you think that the concept of people trying to make themselves better is what made it so successful or what was like the core or key element in that, you think? There's no question that was a show about heart. And, and, you know, I can encounter fans of my shows and like know immediately which one they're relating to or connecting to. And that show was really about changing, changing yourself and improving yourself and giving people tools, information, workout plans, you know, nutrition information, access to the best trainers in the world, access to the best equipment in the world and seeing if they could pull themselves up to a place they wanted to be. And when you have a, a policeman who can no longer fit into his vest and has to go out on the streets um, and think about his family because he's overweight and that's, you know, he's got a food addiction or you think about a doctor whose patients can't take him seriously or follow his advice because of his obesity. And those kind of people were on that show, you know, and it was those kind of people who the nation got behind and fell in love with and it was just such an emotional show and we're an obese nation and i wanted to set a light and michelle obama partnered with us and we did a million pound weight loss challenge we did challenges on facebook we did challenges with 24-hour fitness we did challenges to help inspire people to build groups and do their own competitions and also you know give a kind of menu of what you can do like you know you can eat more lean foods. You can eat more protein. You can you can exercise. These are the ways you can exercise. This is the, these are the kind of things to watch out for. So like all of that, I think, was an amazing part of what that show was. And my grandfather died of a heart attack due to obesity. And, and you know, I just really always felt like it was a subject that we needed to tackle in America. And I'm hopeful that show may have cured more hearts than Johns Hopkins. I mean, I feel mm. like it really had power. Yeah, I mean, that really leans back into what we're saying about the crabs in a bucket, you know. Uh, you guys, are you did something to truly help people. And like you said, we that is what our nation's made up of, you know, with a massive ob- obesity and people don't really know until you hear the statistics and you're like, wow, there's a much larger problem um, than what meets the eye or what you originally think. So it's, thank you, if if anything, thank you, because that's, that's what we need. The world needs more of that. Laughter and 
health, you know? Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, piggybacking on the idea of, you know, kind of making shows with powerful messaging. Um, the untold series is something I've been following very closely. And, um, the specifically the episode with Marty fish, um, I ended up messaging him after I watched it and we had an incredible conversation about mental health. Um, but so shout out to Marty on that one, but, but honestly, like what drew you to making that show and, you know, is it tough to produce basically feature length documentaries for each episode? And then also just kind of what spiritually drew you to that project. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer, Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss playing dirty sports scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is such a great series. Thanks for bringing it up, Will. I'm, I'm psyched you dig it, and um, I'm glad that we continue to remain relevant each successive uh, you know, g- g- group of things. That's our current hit, and Untold is spectacular. You know, the, it's a franchise of amazing sports documentaries. It goes really deep and really specific, and it's no holds bar, and it tells stories that you may have some familiarity on the surface but don't really know the whole story. And with Marty, I think 
you know, seeing his relationship with Andy Roddick, seeing how he was brought up, and then realizing how talented he is, and then where he got to, only to kind of fall apart due to his own mental crisis, and then what he's done to rebuild himself, and how he approaches life and his family and and his moves is super impressive, but also super emotional and a journey that is powerful and important uh, to tell, but also engaging, you know, and, and, and bringing the audience into a, a world and a tribe they've never been in. They've never watched two phenoms become number one players. You know, they've never seen the challenges of pressure on pressure on pressure. And I, I really uh, am proud of it. And the Jimmy Galante, the crimes and penalties about the mafia and hockey team is like extraordinary and one of the most entertaining documentaries they ever produced. And it's so like, how did you not know that story? And then you may have known that story, but you certainly didn't know the whole story. And I think that's what we did with Malice in the Palace. You know, I think there's just a lot of weight. And this next cycle of docs is phenomenal. So, you know, I can't wait for you guys uh, to see them all. And and we're also starting to develop them in motion pictures and really using them as drivers of um, intellectual property. I know um, you guys are both passionate about producing and, you know, media entrepreneurship and, you know, documentaries are like the new books, like they can serve as uh, IP as well. And the franchise is phenomenal. And it's fun to have something so important for Netflix. And I know they really love it, too. Yeah, I'll definitely keep an eye out for for the all the new episodes coming up. Um, I'm sure they'll be served but, up to you because you watched the last ones. Oh no, oh, yeah. for sure. I'm <laughs> very excited. It's it's an incredible series where people can watch on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, speaking of mental health too, uh, I'm definitely someone who struggled with it, and I used health and all of that stuff in that space to really become the best version of myself. And I'm a firm believer, you know, that uh, we're habitual creatures. Um, and I believe you have to be extremely high functioning to do what you do and, and to be so successful at it as well as, are there any habits that you have or that you'd like to share, um, or you think might benefit, you know, anybody even listening? I would say, you know, physical, um, output is like essential for my well being, And I've come to terms with that. And instead of just getting angry at myself for skipping a workout or not doing something physical in the course of the day, I've made sure to carve out time. And that's been something that's happened as a match as I've matured, and it's incredibly important for me to express myself um, physically, either through forty minutes of yoga or a long walk, or playing some golf, or going skiing, or or lifting weights. Whatever I can do to um, get some active output, like really helps my brain and body function at a much higher level. And then, you know, I think it's just about how you manage time and like how you manage stress. And I'm still not very good at that. Um, but those two things are like a high, you know, high tax point for me. Like, but like I'm constantly in a high stress environment and I'm constantly in high stress with a lot of big egos and a lot of big moving parts. And then, you know, the time management part of it. Um, and I don't have it for the day for myself and, or, I, you know, I, I, one thing that I do a lot is steam, like that steam or sauna thing too, is like, mm. feels like another place to kind of I've tried to meditate and I can't stick with it. I've tried to, my mantra somehow sounded like COVID to me <laughs> when I had got learned my mantra. I felt like I was endless 
It's like COVID, COVID, COVID. Come. So I had to like quit. Yep. Uh, and I called the meditate, like teach center to say like, Hey, you guys gave me this bum mantra. I mean, this mantra is, <laughs> you gave me COVID as the freaking mantra. And, and like, can I change it? And they're like, no, you can't change it. I'm like, what do you mean? I can't change it. You're telling me you're trying to help me. And every time I close my eyes, all I'm hearing is COVID, 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 COVID. <laughs> like I need help. Oh. So, you know, it's yeah. never, never a straight line. Yeah. I totally get that. But you know, you keep pressing forward. You're involved in a, a many uh, philanthropic endeavors, including uh, Seeds of Peace. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. I mean, I think we've been given so much and I've been blessed with so much opportunity. It's important to be engaged in part of the world wherever you can express your your support, either financially or physically or um, with with, you know, whatever action you can provide, not just thought. And, um, we live in challenging moments and it's easy to kind of bury your head in the sand because it seems overwhelming where to point your energy. I care, you know, deeply about a lot of things, but just finding how to, to kind of manifest it. I'm, I'm, you know, and I try and work hard on those things. I believe there is a route for peace in the Middle East and feel like anybody who's invested in that has been one small part of the Abraham Accords, which connected um, the the Arab world with the Jewish world for the first time in a, in a real meaningful peace um, uh, out, output uh, with the UAE and Dubai and Bahrain and the Gulf and obviously Egypt where peace had been signed by Begin and Sadat years before. And that's an area that I really care about and try and support charities that encourage it and, and philanthropy around it. And then I really believe in education and the environment as existential crises of our time that need, uh, you know, so much attention and energy. Uh, you know, our educational system is is really in a transition. I think it's in dire needs of a new teaching core because so many teachers are burnt out and want to quit um, and need to be supported and loved and not just challenged in school board meetings about mass. I mean, they've been so misdirected from education in a harmful civic way and then uh and then the environment is just so clearly where all of our attention needs to be focused and when you think about the devastation in ukraine and just like the multiplier effect that's had to accelerate our environmental decay literally in the destruction of ukraine and all of its you know nuclear and horrific human carnage but also um how it's like now being like we need our gas again we need our oil again we need our you know, we need our fossil fuels. It's like going to reverse, uh, you know, the 25 years of no progress we already had, you know, so it, it's, it's all scary, but we have to be involved. All of us have to be involved. We have to talk about Ukraine every day. We have to talk about the environment every day. We have to, to ensure that the conversation is on the table. Someone said to me, you got to put it on the table. Like there's so much you don't want to put on the table. Got to put it on the table. Mm. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. You know, MacGruber is one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, really enjoyed uh, the television series and wanted to ask, one, are we going to get more seasons of MacGruber? And then parlay that into what else, you know, can fans look out for of work of yours? To sadly, look to? sadly, I didn't get to do the MacGruber series. I just put together the MacGruber movie. Oh, but, no, that's horrible. Okay. Oh, uh, no, it's a bummer for me. But I think Lord Michaels has demonstrated a set. 
live it's an engine of a million different kind of creative outputs and i feel like the office has that opportunity i feel like there's a lot left within the office and it's its own kind of marvel universe of comedy and so i've got to start working on that and that's that's my that's my focus now and i i really appreciate you boys likewise yeah thank you so much for your time oh yeah we're we're so grateful for having you on and uh if office fans can look forward to more stuff i mean that's incredible right there thank you so much ben have a good one man thank you okay bye boys bye thank you for watching studio 22 don't forget to like share and subscribe and follow our socials at studio 22 podcast If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.